From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome, everybody, to episode 178 of the Killing It podcast i'm carl here with ryan and dave as usual and we got a heck of a show and and carl just came back from a whirlwind journey around the world travel (laughs) well a third of the way and then back (laughs) speaking of travel gents what would you name your boat if you had one well you know me it would have to be a pun so i would be something like what's up doc See, that's legit. (laughs) And if people don't know Carl and his puns, that that alone might be a good enough reason to still keep a Facebook account because following (laughs) Carl and his puns, that's that's good content right there. See, uh, I I will say um, in reality, my name for my boat would be rental because I would never, ever own one. I just want to know somebody who does. But I will also say honorable mention to the, the public vote for the big ship over in uh, the UK a couple of years ago, Bodie McBoatface. That, that totally. was spectacular. That was awesome. See, I, would, I, would, I want to go with something clever along the line, you know, lines of, of money pit or money hole because it is a hole in the water that you pour money into. Uh, so it would definitely be some riff on that, right. that I, if I name my boat. And I'm because I'm with you. You want to have a friend with a boat? Not have a boat. Exactly. <laughs> they rent boats for far less than fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars. <laughs> and and, yeah. and you can rent the captain along with the boat, so you don't even have to worry about sinking that thing you just rented. <laughs> that sounds like exactly the plan that I want. <laughs> In the fight against today's cyber criminals, we are much stronger as a community. That's why Huntress is proud to launch the Huntress Neighborhood Watch program, a collection of resources designed to help elevate the broader security community. To kick off the Neighborhood Watch program, Huntress is offering internal use licenses. These licenses will be available to the entire MSP community, regardless of if you are a Huntress partner or not, and will give you unrestricted access to the Huntress managed security platform and their team of 24 by 7 threat hunters. Harden your defenses, protect your own backyard, and better serve your customers by joining the Neighborhood Watch program. Join the neighborhood and or learn more at Huntress.com slash neighborhood side note really great idea just just putting it out there yeah some advertising is actually good it's a perfect segue because our first story is cybersecurity today as we're coming off of black hat last week tons of coverage and the one that we're highlighting is the ex CISA chief chris krebs and his conversations around making security valuable and attacks costly uh, this is an interesting perspective because I really would love for somebody to explain to me how you make security valuable because as I put out in a recent editorial, I can't find anything that makes it anything other than an expense <laughs> because of my stack rank of technology investments, spending money on security, only I can only figure out an expense. So guys, in this sort of world where it's all around this, what's your take on trying to make it valuable? Well, so I have to say, I, I, 
I believe in half of what he's saying, because I do believe it's possible to make the attacks costly, and I do think it's uh, possible to make actually the attacks worthless in terms of, uh, you know, we can, we can make it basically almost impossible to use data that's been stolen, or at least certain kinds of data. But at the end of the day, I agree, Dave, that security is a necessary expense, but it's always an expense. And I don't know how you turn it into a profitable piece of your business. Uh, there's lots of reasons where you can take technology and say, no, we're going to make money on that. We're going to separate ourselves from our competition through the appropriate use of some technology. Uh, that's real hard to do with security. Maybe my, my brain just isn't big enough. Well, and this, this is a place where um, we can again say now that the technology has matured beyond the realm of specialists and niche professionals, uh, this gets into classic business justification and it is focused on the idea of brand, right? Because if e-commerce and or online presence is mandatory for your business, then by definition, being online is not the distinguishing factor anymore. Being online in a world where I can be private, where I can be secure, where you can convince me, don't go to the other guy's uh, walled garden because it's evil and dirty over there, but come to mine and I'll protect your privacy. I think that's absolutely a distinguishing factor. And that rolls down, not just from the big platforms, right down into, uh, you want to be my dentist. And I need to understand that not only do you have HIPAA compliance, but SOC 2 compliance and everything else about my personally identifiable information. I think that's absolutely a business value. But I think the second piece of this article is actually where he got into something that I think we as an industry need to take it one step further, right? What he was saying was, in order to be valuable, we actually have to be good at it. And the problem is we're not good at it right now because we're all glory hunting, looking for the massive big cases of like whether it's international espionage and state-sponsored hacking or uh, these these great big vulnerabilities that are going to save the world and get me on stage at Black Hat if I'm the guy who happened to find that thing. Um, by the way, in the meantime, as he points out, ransomware and social engineering and other phishing techniques continue to eat our lunch. Therefore, if you want to have the business value of being secure, you actually have to kind of start at the fundamentals. You got to do the simple things first and then please go off and hunt for glory, but not until after you've actually locked the back door. Yeah, I want to separate, and I want to do the same thing. I want to separate out the, the element of like, look, I am 100% on board with let's make it super expensive and difficult to attack on, 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 the, on the attackers. Like I'm, I'm on sure. board it completely, but I, 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 I can't, I always want to tell the security folks, like, you guys need to look at the technology in a broader sense. The security guys are always into security, right? They love it and they want to do it and they're, they enjoy it. And I am a broader technology spender. And I always, I go back to my, you know, I use this, the good, better, best model that I put together for this, which is I say, like, I look at where it fits on my profit and loss. It's good if it's an expense. I know I need it. It's better if I'm doing something to address cost of goods sold, and it's best if I'm doing something to drive revenue. And guys, security by their own admission always makes business harder, right? So you're not doing anything to drive my revenue. You're well, never doing anything to drive so revenue. I would say this. It makes it harder until 
it gets to the point where it makes it easier. And, and here's what I mean by that. So one of the things he mentioned is that, that you know, the governments as a rule, government bodies, aren't very good at, at how they spend, how they interact with technology, how security interacts with technology. A perfect example of that, CISA and, and us and several state agencies, state organizations, are currently fighting MSPs over the fact that MSPs are not providing backup services. Well, governments are not buying backup services. <laughs> They're not buying disaster recovery. And it seems to me, if you're gonna spend trillions of US dollars pumping up things in the so-called infrastructure, why not pay for every government agency to buy backup and disaster recovery services that will keep them in business when stuff hits the fan? Because that way, if you spend enough money, suddenly you get great value out of this, which is you're never going to see the city of Atlanta down for a week or down for two well, weeks. Right, but, but this is what I'm, but, but it's, but you still not made my, my, you're not destroyed my argument on this is you can protect something, right? You can, you can keep me from losing, but you, what you don't do is drive more revenue. When I looked at the, the best technology spends or the best technology to spend are the ones where I spend a dollar and I get two back for for that spend. And there has never been a security person that's been able to explain to me how I will spend a dollar with them and I will get two in revenue back. It does not work that way. They'll say, well, I can protect your revenue. OK, cool. That's one for one. Maybe you can right. keep me from well, losing my dollar. But I want two. They want you to think of it like insurance, right? I mean, yes. They, well, but again, insurance is a very it, it's a very benign and a very expense-oriented argument, but you hit it directly on the head there, Dave. The problem here is not whether or not security does, in fact, drive revenue. It is a problem that, as an industry, we fundamentally cannot tell the story that way. We literally just last week did a big workshop for a client on the idea of transitioning from technology-based sales to outcome-based sales. And we spent time in there challenging people to say, okay, you sell, and they don't do this, right? They sell something else. But we were like, okay, let's just take generic pieces of technology. You sell storage, you sell networking, you sell security, you sell server infrastructure. Tell me how that drives better business outcomes, especially in the form, if you, you get extra credit, if you can do that in the form of cash money, $1 in more than $1 back out. And it is difficult to change our thinking. It's we're trained for a generation on saying, but the threat and the protection, you got to stop thinking about the technology as a tool and start thinking of it as a business function. Because again, if you run a business with an online forum or you deal with people and their credit card numbers, you're already there. That's, that is sunk cost and existing business capability. And the only way you get more people to adopt it than have currently adopted it, because either it's good or it's not, right? You could make that service better. But once it's good, the only way you make it more adoptable is to make it more safe, right? That, that's the thing. I don't buy cars because of the braking system, but I wouldn't buy a car without a braking system. <laughs> so that's where we have to be able to change our story. Learn to sell business outcomes, not technology inputs. And I would say yeah. th there is an argument to be made that if you can use your security to separate yourself from your competition, there's places where that will help you get more clients. 
Uh, it's just not it's not done very often. It's not certainly not done very efficiently. Right. And by the way, I, I mean, I, I want to give a whole space for like, look, I think the other thing the security people and the security discussion needs to do is be much better storytellers. And by the way, Jen Easterly saying the same thing out of season. You've got to do a better job of telling the story of the importance of it. I just want to make sure we're also having realistic conversations about this stuff. It is a different spend than the kind of investment where I'm going to drive growth through that tech spend. Right. It just is different. And, and when you're putting together stories and making this relatable, don't oversell. It isn't right. going to drive more revenue. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, 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 it could. And I, again, we'll come back to the storytelling thing. But in the spirit of moving on to our second topic, I'll, I'll, unfortunately, I want to talk about another topic that is apparently unsolvable. If, you, if we think that solving the cybersecurity challenges in our industry is difficult, imagine being tasked with solving the gender equity question in our industry. So uh, what we want to do, and I'm actually going to give everybody a very strong recommendation to go to the show notes read the article that we have linked here from MIT Technology Review that is focused on the question of why can't the tech industry fix its gender problem. Uh, it, it's a slightly long read. It's a fascinating read. And if you have uh, a brain based on logic, it is an infuriating read because the problem is not whether or not we have a gender problem in our industry. Every one of us on this podcast is a middle-aged white human male. And uh, we, we understand from having been in this industry for 25 or 30 years, that's not rare right? Most of us are men, most of us are white, most of us are of a certain age, and our industry suffers from a lack of different points of view as well as the individuals who suffer from a lack of opportunity. The question is not if we have a problem, the question is, well, okay, we all get it, why can't we fix it? And in this article, they make a very compelling argument that it just at, at a fundamental level, as as always, and Carl always reminds us of this, follow the money, right? It, it begins and it ends with where the money comes from and what gets funded. So I'd love to hear from you guys. Uh, thoughts, how do we actually fix the gender problem in the, well, tech, in the tech industry? So Dave does a, uh, a, a quarterly review. Quarterly of, survey, yep. You know, uh, what, what companies how they present themselves. He looks at, at their about pages and say, okay, here's your board, here's your, here's your leadership, so forth, and he, and he counts noses, <laughs> uh, what color they are and, and whether they're male or female. Uh, and, you know, that's the representation of our industry, and I think it's a very good representation that Dave puts out. But I would also say, if you go look at the S&P 500, this isn't just our industry. This is you know, part, if, if this problem is quote unquote unfixable, it's because it's a societal thing that hasn't been fixed or, or might be unfixable. So, uh, you know, I'm happy to own that we are a piece of the problem, but we're not the only piece of the problem. And it's, it's in a much bigger context. Um, you know, I, we've all gone to Australia uh, where the issues are a little bit stronger there than they are here. <laughs> The, the imbalances are stronger there. So we know that we can overcome it because we have, uh, and, and Australia is just beginning to work on it, right? So, and as you travel the world, uh, you know, 
this, this is not something that's even a U.S. specific or a North American specific thing. This is a fairly universal problem, and it is worse in tech than in, in many other industries, but we're not unique. This is one where you kind of, again, you have to acknowledge like three, three white guys talking about this problem. Um, so, that, but, I, you know, and I, I want to always start from the like bringing this up because I want to highlight it. And I remain convinced of sort of two statements. The first is these kinds of, of data points always feel like there is an opportunity for disruption that will create opportunity. And the second statement I always make is, is that I wish I was smarter because I could figure it out because I don't have because because I haven't figured out how to put it all together. But the first always feels true to me where I look at this this situation and I look at the way this engages and I said things like this are exactly what my business knows always sniffs out for disruption will create an opportunity. And I don't know what the disruption should be and how to and how to create the incentives. But I keep want to highlight it because I feel again, I feel that if I keep highlighting it, somebody smarter than me will say, <laughs> I've got a way of figuring this out and we'll make we'll make money off of disrupting. It. Well, the other thing is that we're in the there. Are, there's always these waves. Right. And the, the article talks about, you know, what the stats used to be, that it used to be that the vast majority, 70 percent of programmers were women, uh, you know, and that a lot of the factory workers in tech were women and so forth and so on. Well, the next wave is that right now, women are the majority of those who are being admitted to both undergraduate and graduate programs in a lot of the sciences. And so just, just a matter of time, <laughs> the, the numbers will begin to help to correct themselves, but fewer women have entered the technical professions in the last 10 years than the 10 years before that. And there's just, there's something wrong with that, that we are not doing a good job of saying, look, you can show up as your whole self, you can show up here and be, you know, be made to feel welcome. Because if people don't feel welcome, they're just gonna go somewhere else where they think they can fit in. Yep, and see, I think you guys both make very important forward-looking points, right? We have made some progress. Uh, as the article points out, the number of women in technology roles is higher today than it was 10 years ago but it's nowhere near 50%, and that makes us go, hmm. And if you follow the thesis of this article, you get down inside the question of money, right? We are an industry that is largely born from venture capital organizations, and A, the guys who run those things, and I did not say guys as a generic thing, it is a guy industry, basically, right? Um, they tend to look for patterns and identify people who they would be comfortable with. And wouldn't you know, they look like them, they sound like them, they play golf in the same places they went to or dropped out of the same high-end universities. And it, the, the number that just absolutely blew my brain was uh, in the year 2021, record number, highest number ever of venture deals done in the technology industry globally, something like 17,000 deals, of which a grand total of dun, 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 less than 2% went to companies that were founded by women. And if you took that a step further and you said women of minority status, uh, 0.004% of the deals went to that population. Now, uh, if you're going to tell me, well, it's because they're only, it's a meritocracy. They're only going to fund the best ideas. Really? 
I'd love to have somebody tell me the batting average of any of these things and tell me that they don't miss out on 95% of their investments because they do. And then they go out and do it again because it's a pattern. It's the only way we know. Okay, well, if the answer is we do what we do because we've always done it that way and we miss 95% of the time, uh, I, I don't have to be like a soothsayer of the future to say, well, either you should do it differently or somebody else should be the one empowered to do it because you guys suck at it and you clearly have a built-in bias and that's an issue across our industry. It bleeds from investment into the problems that get focused on and solved, the people who get hired to lead those organizations, and the way that we staff out our firms. It's not, it's not an accident. I want to, I, and I always want to, I want to highlight in here that wealth is not a proxy for intelligence. <laughs> and and too, too often, uh, I have been successful at business, I am wealthy, uh, is it, there's a, a belief that that instantaneously makes you smart. I always sort of tease on a lot of these investors and go, they are gamblers. Why? Because they're bad at it. Like they are just rolling the dice, like just fine. If you actually dig into the number of deals that work out versus the number of deals that don't, they're bad at this. Now they have enough money and they place enough bets that they can be successful. They only need one occasionally to pop. Right. But from a raw, like, are they great at analysis? No, like they aren't. <laughs> it's kind of proven. But we need to actually focus on the fact that sometimes like intelligence is not proxied via wealth. Agreed completely. As, as somebody who doesn't have any money, I have to agree with you. So hey, we're not, <laughs> not wealthy, smart guys. <laughs> so sadly, that's all the time we have for that topic. So topic number three. I want to ask the question, will Amazon map the inside of your house? So Amazon has agreed to pay 1.7 billion with a B dollars to acquire iRobot, which uh, as you know, uh, makes little vacuum cleaners that uh, cats can ride around on so that you can make YouTube videos. And, but also those vacuum cleaners have chips on them and what that vacuum cleaner does and, and many of its competitors is they literally map the inside of your house so they know how to move around furniture and go down the hallway and into the next room and so forth. And they uh, become more efficient over time because they've mapped the inside of your house. Amazon, Amazon, the map people now are going to own that. And so the question is, do you have a right to that data? Is that data something that they should be allowed to have access to or to sell? And literally my mind went to, uh, I wanna give a, a Roomba as a gift to my enemies so I can map the inside of their house. And then when it comes time to, you know, know which room to invade or to bomb, I will most likely know which one is the bedroom and, you know, which one is the kitchen and so forth. Uh, so, you know, this has military potential. Uh, it certainly has data potential. If I know what percentage of the time you spend in each room and so forth and so on, interacting with your robot, <laughs> uh, what do you guys think is this am i just like overreacting because i put this down and thought to myself we haven't had a really scary headline in a while so this is my candidate oh amazon totally bought irobot for the mapping technology <laughs> let yeah. me just let me just let me just observe like that that is completely one of the things again and and if it makes sense right so they are very much trying to 
get into smart homes. They want to be much more about the delivery of things in your house. The more they know about your house, the better they're able to sell you things for your house. Like that just is how this kind of kind of works together. And so when you look at there were lots of robot companies they could have bought. Oh, and by the way, they've been trying to build their own robots. But the uniqueness of iRobot was this this mapping technology. Oh, yeah, they totally bought it for that. Now, <laughs> you know, uh, I in, in this case will, will sort of say, like, I do actually think that they probably legitimately own the mapping data. Like, if you think about the way it's used and delivered and via cloud enablement, like, they, they probably own that. Uh, now, where I, where I will, will say I want, there, I want there to be privacy regulations on what this kind of data can be used to do, that's where I get into a little bit of my looking. But I, but I actually think, that at least the way it's defined right now, I suspect they own that data pretty free and clear. Well, see, I, I'll, I'll take it a step further. Nobody at Amazon is dumb. They don't ever buy things on accident. And there is always a business model behind the, the, the investment decisions that they make. So they didn't buy it because they like vacuum cleaners or they're really concerned about the cleanliness of your floors. They bought it because it enhances existing business lines and it opens up potential new business lines. Everything at Amazon is about the data and the analytics. They were the first ones who invented the concept of you might also like, and we all went, damn it, you're right. I would also like that thing. It was really, really accurate. And, uh, and I wish you hadn't known that much about me in the, in the short term, right? But they are doing it again at a different level. Uh, I believe that, that it's transparently obvious why they bought them. Is it okay? And I think this is a sea change at a culture level. It is big, but it is slow and it will eventually get there. Because by the way, the term sea change doesn't mean big things happen all at once. It means that eventually we will get to a place where the mass of the population agrees that data is mis acquired and misutilized in the majority of cases. And if you would like the privilege of our data, A, you got a sign on the dotted line that says, I'm not gonna do anything that I didn't disclose to you right up front with A, that I'm capturing it and B, how I intend to utilize it. And then B, has to be regulation and oversight on that stuff because where as a culture, we have spent a generation being, okay, well, you mean I can play that farming game for free if I just tell you everything about me and my spouse and everybody who lives in my domicile? Oh, of course, I'll tell you all of that information because I like free farming. We were okay with that for an entire like last 15 years. And now we are moving into a place where I think the population is getting wise. And they're like, wait a second. Uh, Amazon plus my home map, I ain't okay with that. And therefore, we have to go back in and unring the bell somehow. I realize how difficult that is. I'm glad you brought up the question of privacy because here's the, here's the way that I would look at it. Is there a difference between Amazon using this internally and Amazon selling it? I think there is. So internally, Amazon will suddenly know, at, at a minimum, how many bedrooms you have. <laughs> Right. They will know the square rough square footage of your house. They'll, they'll, you know, even if this thing can't go everywhere, they'll have a really good idea. Combine that with, oh, you subscribe to this and you get your your vitamins on a subscription from Amazon and you get this many deliveries a month and you have these other devices in the house. 
they are building a much richer picture of who you are. And this goes to Dave's favorite Amazon topic, which is healthcare, right? Yes. <laughs> they are literally going to be able to know just a one level deeper about every piece of your life. That makes them better at selling you more stuff. Then the next question is, do the privacy laws, even those that have been proposed, even begin to address this? Can they use this data any way they want, even if they're not selling it? Like if they're just using it internally to try to figure out how many more things to sell you or what else you need a subscription to or, you know what I mean? Like, what's the limit on well, that? As of today, they can because a lot, <laughs> right? I mean, I mean, this is this is why I mean, I, I've said it multiple times. Why I'm a believer in let's have some privacy law discussion here because I think some of this needs to get a little bit worked out because right now it just feels like this open-ended. You can do anything you want, uh, but you can at least see the why, right? You can see how they're connecting all of these pieces. If you're just putting on your purest, I am running Amazon hat this makes total sense, right? I, for exactly all the reasons Carl has said, I now have all the components I need to continue to my growth trajectory as Amazon. Makes well, and, and mind you, mind you, uh, I know too many people who work at Amazon to be uh, not fully aware of the fact that they believe at an operational level that they fundamentally own every bit of data that they can mine or infer about you they are not, they're they're under no illusions until somebody says hell no you do not own that in the form of a law with a consequence they begin with the fundamental assumption of if i can figure out a way to get it and use it well of course i can i don't think that's what the customer thought was being done to them so i think that's where we have to be able to take a step back and go okay just because you can doesn't mean you you should so Final note for all the 17 year olds who listen to the show, uh, go into big data and analytics because the world is going to be your oyster for the next 30 or 40 years. It's totally true. <laughs> Sadly, that will do it for episode 178 of the Killing It, Killing it! podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.